LBZ Original. Hi, I'm Roger Berkowitz. I'm Larry Galco, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Joining us now on Name Brands is a gentleman and entrepreneur I've had the pleasure of knowing for over 30 years, Jim Cook, founder and chairman of Boston Beer, home of Sam Adams. Jim is originally from Ohio, who came east to Boston to attend Harvard College and ended up staying here on to complete degrees from both Harvard Law and Harvard Business Schools. Not a bad pedigree. He then found himself working for the Boston Consulting Group, where he worked with CEOs, coaching them on the development of their business plans. While engaged in this endeavor, he had an epiphany of sorts, and the rest is history. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do a disclaimer right now, because anytime Jim goes anywhere or speaks, he brings beer, right. and, 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 and lots of beer. Lots and, of and, and so as this isn't TV and this is a podcast, we can get away with having fun drinking beer. So if at some point during the course of our discussion uh, we sort of go off the rails, you'll understand the reason why. I, I think probably towards the end of the conversation, <laughs> it'll sound differently from the first part. <laughs> so, so, Jim, welcome. Thank, thank you for joining us here on Name Brands. And and so let's just go back for a minute. I'm I'm guessing you know you uh, you were a reasonably well paid consultant at the uh, at BCG, uh, and uh, you wanted to build something. So just sort of take us back. What was going through your mind at that time? Yeah, and do you mind if I have a beer? Sure. I certainly think I'm more interesting when I'm drinking. So. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've seen actually Larry do s- silly things when he's had alcohol, so I've got to be careful. Uh, careful. Well, we'll keep him under control. All right. So I started Sam Adams in my kitchen in 1984, um, and it was kind of a different beer landscape than you see today. Beer in America was basically a wasteland. Um, And, you know, I have all these uh, degrees, but uh, I'm also the sixth oldest son in a row to be a brewer. So I grew up around beer. My dad was a brewmaster, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, six of them. And so beer was kind of in my blood, maybe about a .05, <laughs> a .06, <laughs> a legal level. Okay, all right, legal, a legal level. Definitely, like okay. definitely there. Um, and, you know, I'd worked for uh, this consulting firm for six years, and I one day I thought, gee, uh, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? And the answer came back, no. And then I realized that the rest of my life starts tomorrow. So uh, I went in and I gave my notice, uh, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. They gave me a long transition period out, and I looked at different business ideas, but I kept coming back to this idea of making beer. And uh, the opportunity was, you know, so large that it was invisible, you know, because uh, nobody really saw this opportunity to make great beer in the United States, give it to people fresh. And, you know, what I realized is, because uh, I came from a brewing background, and, and what American beer drinkers could get in 1984, you could either get the mass-produced American beers, which are fine for what they are. They're clean, they're consistent, they're inexpensive. You always get the same thing, but you'll never get a lot of flavor from them. Now, if you wanted more flavor back then, you had to go to an import. And the imports I knew as a brewer were typically stale, typically skunky. Skunky. Mm-hmm. You know, from the green and the clear bottles that they were packaged in because that ruins beer. And as a rule, most of them were like the mass-produced beers of their home country. They just shipped them here and jacked up the price, whether it was Bax or Heineken or you know, Moosehead or St. Pauli Girl or Corona or Modelo. They were not like considered great beers where they came from. It's only when they called them imported beers. So what I realized is there was no way to get a great fresh beer in the United States. And that was the simple business idea that led to Sam Adams and helped start this whole craft beer revolution was great 
fresh beer. You, you know what's funny? Because you're sixth generation in the beer business. And oftentimes, if your family is doing something, if your father's a doctor, your, your grandparents were doctors, you become a doctor. If you're in the legal profession, you're in the legal profession. If you're in the fish business, you're in you the follow. fish business of the, <laughs> of the food thing. But that's kind of what right. happens when you go to the dinner table and that's the discussion. It sort of gets into, as you say, your blood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you have to chowder at about 0. .06. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, what, do you, what is the genesis and motivation behind the brand name Samuel Adams? Who came up with it? And also, did you face any trademark challenges to get this um, protect, protection for the name? And I also heard that you went to some bars with two names. You yep, settled on Samuel Adams. True. Roger, I'd be curious to know, what was the other brand name you were also considering? So it's a good question. Um, I guess, you know, I, I had some time uh, as I was starting the business before I had to name the beer because I was working on the recipe and trying to figure out how to, you know, make this beer in a 20th century brewery from a 19th century recipe. So I would just constantly think of names. And I ended up with like 800 different names. And I winnowed it down and I winnowed it down. And I had, you know, eventually it came down to two names. And, and uh, Sam Adams, I liked because he was this forgotten historical figure. Nobody knew who Sam Adams was till he became a beer. And that sort of brought him back. But in his time, he was uh, a really important figure. In fact, the state of Massachusetts, you know, every state has two statues in the Capitol, uh, the two most important people from that state. And Sam Adams is one of them from Massachusetts because he was the revolutionary. He started the revolution. He was a propagandist, the rabble rouser, the firebrand, the guy who stirred up the people. And the first one to believe in American independence, that America wasn't taxation without representation. It was just screw that. We we want to be in our own country. We don't want representation. We are Americans. We have our own destiny. So I, that was a very compelling name to me. Um, and I ended up choosing that over the second choice. <laughs> which was? Which was uh, named after the first clipper ship ever built in Boston. It was a beautiful ship uh, built in East Boston called the New World. So that was the other one was New World uh, Boston Lager, and who, I like and, that and too. Who, I'm trying to think who was the, who was the guy who built that? David McKay. That's right, oh, yeah, David right. McKay. Yes, wow, yes. Wow. famous shipbuilder. Hey, before we get into um, the landscape today and what it looks like today, can you give us and our listeners a primer on beer? In other words, what what are sort of the key ingredients that never vary, but also the difference between a lager, an ale, a stout, uh, you know? Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, that's like giving people a primer on fish. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. right. What, right people, do what do you want people to know? Well, I guess I'd start with saying beer is very simple, basic, wholesome. It uh, is probably the reason that we have civilization today. Because, and I know you're looking a little askance, but I thought well, maybe that's why we had wars. But okay. <laughs> no, no, it's why we have culture, technology, civilization. <laughs> no, no, beer was uh, really the the foundation of of the Paleolithic Revolution. You know, twelve thousand years ago, when humans settled into villages and created civilization, and they settled into villages because they learned how to grow grain. They didn't have to chase around the landscape. You know, they weren't nomadic. That was the humans became. You know, built villages and and culture um, in order to grow grain. And then they grew the grain and they had to figure out what to do with it. And the, the seeds were much harder. And so they figured out if they ground it up, mixed it with water, uh, put it in a clay pot uh, out in the sun, that something amazing would happen to it. It would start, it would come alive. It would start to bubble. It smelled really good. And it would do that for four, five, six, seven days, and then it would stop, and, and you could drink it. 
And uh, it had a number of amazing properties. Uh, And we now know that what happened is ambient yeast settled on this gruel-like mixture called mash that was the ground-up grain in the water and began fermenting it. And as they fermented it, they took... Uh, they did a bunch of things. They took the free amino nitrogen out of it and formed it into proteins that are uh, nutritionally available to human beings. So it was a, a meat substitute. And they, uh, you know, they created uh, alcohol, so it had a lot of food value. And then, you know, uh, on top of it, for some reason, when, you know, God created the universe, he or she created no harmful human, no harmful pathogens to human beings. There is nothing that will grow in beer that can harm humans. There's all kind of organisms out there that are bad for us. None of them has ever been known to grow in beer. So it was also not only nourishing, but it was the safest source of hydration. The water was polluted. You could get cholera, typhus, hep C, gastroenteritis, all kind of stuff from the water. They should have warning labels on the water. (laughs) The beer was the good stuff. In fact, when the pilgrims left Plymouth, England, and set sail for the New World, they provisioned the Mayflower with no water, only with beer. A gallon a day for every man, woman, and child. I'd make that trip. And the reason they ended up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and not further south like Virginia, I mean, they knew the weather sucked up here, but they landed in Plymouth because they ran out of beer. William Bradford, the diarist on the Mayflower, wrote, we could not take time for further search or consideration. Our vittles were much spent, especially our beer. So basically, we're here in Massachusetts because the pilgrims stopped for a beer. (laughs) So beer is basic and fundamental to human history. In its classic form, it has only four ingredients, water, yeast, malt, and hops. That's it. Um, And the flavor profile of beer, if you really, you know, to tie together all the flavors, there's lots of different kinds of beer. But like with wine, it's a balance between tannins, acids, and fruit. With beer, it's a balance between the body and sweetness of the malt and then the spiciness and bitterness of the hops. And in a good beer, like Sam Adams Boston Lager, you'll pick all four of those elements out as they march across your palate in this wonderful sort of parade of flavors. And beer is divided into lots of styles. Fundamentally, it's divided into lagers and ales. And ales are, from, are the original form of beer. They're fermented with bread yeast, same yeast that makes bread, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Lagers originated in Bavaria about well, two, three hundred years ago, and they're fermented with a variation of that yeast that ferments more slowly and at cooler temperatures that give lagers a sort of mellower, uh, smoother so, so rough on ale, smoother on lager, IPAs. That's an ale. That's okay, that's an IPA. IPA. Okay. The okay. A okay. stands, if I can give you the story of why they're called India Pale Ale, um, which was about 250 years ago, the British had all these troops in India, and they needed to provision them, uh, and uh, they needed to send them, you know, beer. They weren't going to mess around with Gatorade or something like that. They sent them beer, and that beer had to go all the way around the tip of Africa across the Indian Ocean. So they would make a higher alcohol, very heavily hopped beer, hops being bacteria static. So it was a way, you know, of keeping stuff from growing in it, so higher alcohol, higher hops preserved the beer for the the troops that garrisoned India in the 18th and 19th century. Jim, you know, how do you deal with the fact that you know you were a small brewery and now you're a mega brewery? And we look at <laughs> I'm saying we look at millennials. Millennials usually like to buy brands that are they can have conversations with the small guy, the boutiques, whatever. Do you have concerns that younger craft? beer drinkers have negative feelings about the brands of larger beer companies, maybe including Sam Adams, and how are you overcoming this perceived or real obstacle for that, that group? 
Yeah, I think you start with reality, right? Do you know what uh, our market share of the U.S. beer business is? I guess for Sam Adams. One percent? Yeah, that's it. So, um, I mean, the reality is we're still a small company. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the big guys like uh, uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev makes hundreds of times more beer. I mean, they literally spill as much beer as I make all year. So you start with that. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> still the case. They've gotten bigger as I've gotten, you know, bigger. And um, so you start with the fact that this is who we are. We are a small brewery in the context of the, the brewing industry and, you know, still, you know, run and led by the founder. I mean, this is not a huge corporation. You know, this is me. And I still taste a sample of every batch of beer that we make. So, you know, you start with just, you know, authenticity because millennials, I think, uh, and I hate to like stereotype, you know, a whole generation. Sure. So I apologize. <laughs> go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, We've had a beer. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell um, <laughs> I've grown a couple of millennial children. And my sense is, you know, one thing that's important to them and probably to every generation is authenticity, that you are who you say you are. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of brands out there that have maintained that integrity and authenticity as they grow. I used to teach mountaineering and a long, long time ago, you know, I'd buy these pitons called Lost Arrows from this guy who had a forge out in California named Chenard. And that's Patagonia. And Chenard's still really? there. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they have, uh, and so I think it's key to like uh, keep your values. And there's nothing like a founder that will keep you honest. Yeah, you know, the, and, and, and also, but also, and, and it's kind of interesting because I think this plays out in, in all kinds of businesses, but also younger generations are always challenging the status quo and want to put their own mark on things. And so if something is established and perhaps has been there a fair amount of time, well, you know, it's time for a change. It's, it's time to change it up. I think sometimes it's for the sake of change as opposed to is it better change? Mm-hmm. And for us, you know, we constantly want to create new beers. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a motto at Boston Beer Company, which is the status quo sucks. The only reason it exists is because we haven't yet figured out how to do it better. But we will. So, you know, we've, I mean, we're constantly trying to leave the status quo in the rearview mirror because, and especially with beer, because there's so much opportunity to be creative. I mean, and I always contrast this to wine. And I think about the poor winemaker. You know, they really have nothing to work with. They have one ingredient, grapes. And that's all they have. And they really have very few choices in how they make their wine. They, they have basically one ingredient and two choices. Skins or no skins, steel or wood. And so I feel badly for the poor winemaker, which is why, you know. I'm sensing that's not quite as genuine, but go ahead. Right, right. I mean, come on, let's face it. You know, red wine, I mean, if you're honest, red wine all tastes like red wine. Uh, Sometimes it's more tannic than not. Yeah, but that's kind of BFD. You know, with beer, I mean, in front of you, you have... Uh, you know, th- f- we have four different beers. We have uh, Sam Adams Boston Lager, the classic, the the sort of the taste that started it all. And then you've got... T- tell me um, about this IPA. IPA. Hazy and juicy. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd see juicy on a beer. It's almost like dry beer, is it right? No. That's the opposite. This, That's yeah, the yeah. opposite. Try it. you got to taste yeah. it. And this cider is amazing. Yeah. What, what, what well, do you that, call this one? That's Angry Orchard Crisp. Phenomenal. This is yeah. really phenomenal. Well, that uses some of the flavor idiom I'm of wine. I'm having a whole glass before Rover, I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah. This is delicious. Well, I hate to drink alone. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> You're obviously not, but go ahead. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so New England IPA is a new style of beer that was actually 
created here in New England. It's not like any other IPA. When I mean, you look at it, it's almost like looking at some a combination of milk and orange juice. It's hazy. <laughs> um, it's not rough. I mean, I think no. you know, and and that's sort of one of the nicer things because. When I've had ale in the past, sometimes it grabs you around the throat. Yeah, and it yeah just, you want to scrape your tongue. Right, right, right. Yeah. But this, this is this No, is we've reinvented pleasant. IPA here in New England by making it an IPA that's— the West Coast IPA is, like, clear and dry and bitter and, and resiny and piney. That's the—and that's what everybody knows as IPA. Well, uh, New England has now reinvented IPA. This is new. We're just rolling it out. It's the first, you know, national New England IPA. It's you're rolling out right now. Yeah, right now. Uh, it's a new taste mm. that is very smooth. We use some oats in it. Very it's light, almost silky, and it's luscious. Yes, that juiciness. It, it is. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting because there were so many little uh, microbreweries sort of, you know, popping up everywhere. And I think, you know, when when people, you know, think of, of Sam Adams, they, you know, they think of Boston Lager, they think of, of a couple of things. I think people would be shocked to know how many beers you're working on right now or that you've created mm-hmm. over the years. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, give, yeah. Give me a number. Hundreds. That's, that's, that really right. is amazing. That really well, you know, I get <coughs> bored easily. I have an attention span of a gerbil. I hear you. So, <laughs> so, so, I need so, to do new yeah. stuff. So, Jim, if, if you will say hypothetically, test to try 50 new beers a year, okay, hypothetically? Sure. Okay. How many of them usually make it to market? And what process do you go through so you give the same approval saying that's another brand that we're going to have from Boston Beer. Yeah, well, I work closely with our brewers, and they have lots of ideas. I have an occasional idea. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> um, sometimes it works out. Yeah, yeah. one or two you, did. You just uh, email it in. <laughs> yeah, um, and we have a very creative team of brewers, very diverse, different backgrounds, different mentalities. You know, some have been with me, one of them over 30 years, uh, others less time. Uh, and we so we worked together uh, for very for decades, and you know you just want to push the envelope of doing the cool new thing. I mean, I want people to say, you know, Sam Adams has made you know classic beers that have stood the test of time because they're delicious, and yet they're still doing cool new mm. stuff. Oops, like you, New England you, IPA. You, you, you created something that I'm fascinated with. It, it, it's called the Long Shot American Homebrew Competition. And, and I, I, that's fascinating. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and, and what, yeah. what is sort of one of the, the home runs that might have come out of that? Um, yes, the Long Shot Homebrew Competition recognizes the roots of craft beer that nobody sees and nobody has. But... Uh, craft brewing grew out of the home brewing tradition. Um, it was legalized in, I think, 1978 uh, by Jimmy Carter, and that helped create a real interest in brewing. Jimmy or Billy Carter? <laughs> I think yeah, Billy was gone by then, but, and I, you didn't need to be a home brewer to make Billy beer. Uh, so, uh, and and there's a lot of creativity. There's several million home brewers, and they're very creative, and they make some really great beers. And to this day, you know, I still read my monthly copy of Zymergy, the home brewers magazine, and get ideas. So we wanted to recognize this community as being very important to the community of brewers. It's not just craft brewers. We consider ourselves a community of brewers, and that includes millions of home brewers. And, you know, one of the things I've learned, and you probably have seen it as well, is the line in many vocations, the line between, you know, a talented amateur and a practicing professional is largely arbitrary and invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Good long point. shot competition finds the best home brewers in the United States, and then we make their beer and we bring it to market uh, oh. commercially wow. for them. Uh, and they get some recognition, they get kudos. I think like three or four, maybe five of, of the winners are now commercial brewers. Really? Mm. Oh, oh, yeah. Very nice. So, so, so who, which beer? Can you give us a... Oh, gosh. Um, 
let's see. There's a guy in Chicago. They're all small brewers. A guy in Chicago, a guy from the Cape, a guy uh, in New Hampshire, and uh, a guy in California. That's um, great. So you, yeah. you really gave them, you know, their shot at it. And now they're they're they're, they're now they're making a living. That's very nice. As brewers, that is really should feel good about that. Yeah, it's cool, yeah. and they're good brewers. Okay, now, Jim, when just playing for Roger mentioned microbreweries. When you began thirty four years ago, nobody really knew what a microbrewery was. Yet you were able to build an incredible business and a best selling brand. Fast forward to two thousand eighteen. There seems to be a microbrewery in every corner, almost like Dunkin' Donuts, right? And much more competition in wine, beer, and spirits. Share with us, Jim, your vision of the future of what's happening in the industry and what is Sam Adams doing to stay fresh, relevant, stand out from all the other brands to sustain that growth you've already achieved for the last three-plus decades? Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, you know, it's very exciting that uh, – that America has now got a craft beer revolution. I named it Sam Adams because I wanted to start a revolution in beer, and it worked. It succeeded. I mean, today, the best beers in the world are made here in the United States. No question. American craft, oh, absolutely. American craft brewers sweep competitions. It's not even close. No, no. Even in Germany. I know you you, you won the first one in Germany when you you entered Sam Adams. Yeah. Yeah, we've won all kinds of medals, even in Germany with German beer judges in German categories. We got the gold medal for the world's best Oktoberfest in really? Munich Excellent. during the Oktoberfest. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, the, the Germans, you could hear the air go out of the room when we got announced as the best wow. Oktoberfest wow. in the blind world. Tasting. Blind uh, tasting. Blind mm. tasting. No, absolutely. The American brewers are teaching the rest of the world how to make beer from, you know, being a joke when I started. American beer, when you, you, Roger, you probably remember the joke, which I can't use on the air, the punchline, but it was, why is American beer like making love in a canoe? <laughs> all right. I this is the podcast. Yeah, right. This is Larry a podcast. This is a Larry podcast. Go it. ahead, share it. Go no. Ahead. Well, <laughs> no, you share it. It's your friend, not mine. No, no. All right, all right, all right. There's some listeners who will figure it out. If someone writes, the first three people that write in, we'll get them some beer. That's okay. right. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Right. But if you mention the, pop, the punchline now, then your market shall go up another 2%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people got to dig for that one. Got <laughs> Now, all right. So, you, so you in front of us, we have some glasses, uh, and you're passionate about glassware. Uh, tell us about this unusually shaped uh, Sam Adams glass. Sure. Um, and it came out of actually. There's a guy uh, on my board who's been associated with the company for ooh, pushing well over 25 years, um, and he was one of the first masters of wine in the United States. He's actually from Newton, oh. uh, though his French name. Um, and oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You probably know yes, him. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he's a really uh, curious, interesting guy, and we were batting around ideas. And he said, you know, Jim, with, uh, w- with wine, because uh, I asked him, uh, we wine guys, you ha- like have this fetish about the glass. Does it really matter? And he said, oh, no, it really does. The shape and structure of the glass will affect the experience of the wine. And I went out and got a bunch of Riedel glasses because I thought they were, you know, the standard. And I tried the same wine in different glasses. And lo and behold, he was right. I thought, that's really interesting. Now, that has to be true about beer. The physiology of taste is the same. The physics of flavors and aromas is roughly the same. And you were the first person to come to this conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody had ever designed a glass to enhance the flavor of a particular Mm -hmm. style of beer. Is is it true it took you almost a year to develop this glass? Yes, Um, We worked actually with, we had three uh, PhDs, two PhDs in sensory science, one in material engineering, and then our (laughs) brewers, because this was new ground. Nobody had ever done this. You know, it was like, uh, to me, this was really great. It was white space. It was like, great, we're doing something nobody's ever done before. Let me design the perfect glass for Sam Adams Boston Lager. And it ended up with a bunch of unique features, a little ridge on the interior lip 
that creates turbulence as the beer comes out of the glass, which creates, uh, which releases the CO2 and pushes aroma out of it. Amazing. So it's Amazing. curved outward hmm. so yeah. that it puts the beer on the front of your tongue. So you get the, the sweetness of the malt first before the other flavors. This bowl is the best shape to capture and collect aromatics. It actually looks like Riedel Sommelier glass. Mm -hmm. Their $60 mm -hmm. glass has roughly this shape. And then it tapers down so that you can hold it without grasping it and putting too much heat in it. Ooh, and then interesting. We took interesting. A, yeah, because a pint yes, glass you grab right. like that. Absolutely and, right. Yeah. And then we lasered into the bottom of the glass nucleation sites where bubbles form. You know, like on champagne, they'll etch the little... We did that with a laser so that you get bubbles forming in the bottom of the glass. They're constantly rising through the glass, through the beer, releasing aromatics as they pop at the surface. The other thing is that, that, that you know, and you were you were against cans. I remember this yeah. for a long time. Can I ever ask you, how, how come you don't turn a can? And oh, no, no. No, they, they, they would give the beer a metallic flavor. Mm -hmm. And slowly cans improved until like five years ago, there was no detectable difference. So we didn't want to put Sam Adams in a can if it was going to pick up metallic flavor. And the can makers have gotten better and better with the linings. And so, so what is it lined with in the interior now? What? It's a polymer. Okay. It's, yep, I yep. think it has so, a so it BPA. Is so, a, it, so it doesn't take any uh, flavor? You know, there's no, no it's transference? Inert. It's about as inert uh, hmm. as the glass in a bottle. Mm -hmm. and, and aluminum chills better? Um, it'll chill faster. It'll warm faster. And even with the can, we designed a special Sam can. If you look... At this can, mm -hmm. it's different. It's got a bigger lid, huh. and yes, yes. it's got an hourglass shape at the top. It goes in, and then it comes out. Now, the normal beverage can is designed to be as cheap as possible, which means you want as small a lid as possible because that's the most expensive part of it. And beer cans, this traditional beer can, it's the same can that you drink, you know, diet soda, tomato juice, you know, fruit juice. Anything, All the same, yeah. Everything, yeah. it's yeah. a standard. And that's not optimized for beer. In mm. fact, you know, what? when you drink from a normal beverage can, you actually suck. It, it does. Out of it, I mean, you don't suck. <laughs> yeah. But you yeah. suck out of it. And, and, you and then it drips. Then it drips. Yeah. yeah, and you form yeah. a seal, right. and you don't really taste it until you break that seal right. and get natural. the aromatics. Wow. But this forces your mouth open. So you get aromatic. So, so you you just mentioned something before that's always sort of fascinated me. In the U.S., we tend to think that the colder the beer, the better. Whereas in Europe, it's closer to room temperature with a thicker head, and yes. you get more flavor out of it. So yes. tell us about that. This is roughly right. In the high 40s is the best temperature to experience a really flavorful lager, like Sam Adams Boston Lager, like 46, 48 degrees. You know, ice cold, 32, 33 degrees. You don't taste anything. Your tongue is numb. It deadens it. <laughs> Would you drink a Cabernet at 34 degrees and expect to taste it? No. Same thing with so, beer. But, so if you're drinking Budweiser, it doesn't make any difference. Though. Well, you know. Theoretically. A beer like Budweiser is very well designed to be refreshing. You know, and I have to say... That's very I'm, diplomatic. Yeah, well, no. I mean, my grandfather worked for Anheuser-Busch. I grew up around people at the big breweries, and sometimes my fellow craft brewers will get overly zealous and disparage them, and I, don't, I think that's wrong. For what they do, they are great at it. They make beer with not very much flavor, so you can't hide any faults. Um, it is clean. It is consistent. They're very good with their freshness standards. They pull beer out of the market. So for what they're trying to do, they give you a great experience. It's like if you want great French fries, it's hard to beat McDonald's. I mean, let's face it. They're great French fries. And you walk in there, and you know what you're going to get, and you're going to get the same thing, and it's really good, and it's inexpensive. I mean, people, I mean, particularly in the beginning, people would say, well, I don't really like this Sam Adams. It's got too much flavor for me. I want a Miller Lite. And I'd say... 
I'm not going to argue with you. You just saved yourself a lot of money. Go enjoy your Miller Lite. Jim, looking at the light beer market, a long time ago, Lightship was your original light beer you came out with, and then you stopped producing it. Yep, it And then failed. about a year later or so, Sam Light came to the market. What did you learn about Lightship that enabled you to have Sam Light become such a huge success? Well, Lightship was meant, uh, I had an idea meant to compete with the imports. I had this idea. I said, what if I can make a beer with less than 100 calories that passes the German beer purity law and has the flavor and taste of a Bex or a St. Pauli Girl or another German beer? And that was Lightship. Um, it turned out people didn't want that. Uh, when they were drinking light beer, they wanted not much flavor. When they were drinking a Bex or a St. Pauli Girl or a Heineken, they didn't care about the calories. And so, I mean, and I love that beer. I actually right. put my kids' names on the ship. And, oh, yeah? and the ship came from yeah. the New World. I recycled <laughs> the New World label that I didn't use and turned it into light ship. And I put my kids' name on it. It was originally the Megan Charles. And then I had Elizabeth, so it became the Megan Charles Elizabeth. Cool. And then I had Emily, and it was the Megan Charles Elizabeth <laughs> Emily. And I felt, and we, she only had like four months on the label before we killed her. Right, right. And then what did you learn from that to have Sam Light become such a phenomenal success? Well, we learned that um, people were more accepting of calories. So uh, we, could, we went to 119 calories, and, and they wanted craft beer flavor. So it's darker, it's richer, um, it is basically a different flavor profile. Instead of like mimicking a Heineken or a Bex, which are, you know, sort of pale and dry and bitter, this one is amber and malty and smooth. So from coming from a product that didn't succeed, how are you able to, con to um, convince the consumer that this new light beer is better than the, the last one, give us a shot, you know, yeah. because the experience before wasn't that great. Well, luckily, every consumer has this infallible quality detector called a mouth. <laughs> and, you know, it, so if you make something that's really good tasting and get it into people's mouths, you know, you're going to give them a good experience. And to me... And I think Roger would probably, having built a, an amazingly successful business, and, you know, I think I told you progress, this, the story I mean, of, you know, I, because I came here when there was one store, and when I graduated from college, my parents said, you can have a meal anywhere you want in Boston. And I said, great, I'm going to a place in Inman Square called Legal Seafood. It's picnic tables, it's paper placemats, they don't take credit cards, <laughs> but the coffee's free, and it's the best seafood in Boston. So, you know, they created a brand with a great product, and you can do that. You know, everybody thinks if something's successful, it must have been the marketing. Right. Well, no, no. not really, you know, all of us as consumers, we don't want to buy great marketing. Right. We want to buy great, great products. products. Right. So focus on great products. I, I remember something that you once said I thought was fascinating that, um, you know, you, you had a great education, certainly, um, but you learned something from a particular book that you saw, uh, and you, you, the lesson you learned from that book you know, sort of really helped you in the in the beer business. You reflected more on that book uh, than you did. Uh, I was I think it was a sales book. When I started Sam Adams, you know, I knew how to make beer, but I, I went to all the distributors in Boston. I think there were five of them, uh, and they all turned me down. None of them wanted my beer. Um, luckily, in Massachusetts, the law allows you as a brewer to go sell it yourself. So I realized. Oh my gosh, uh, I got to be a beer salesman. That's not exactly what people, you know, go to Harvard right. Business School, Harvard <laughs> Law School to go sell beer. Put those beers in your trunk and take off, yeah. right? Yeah. But I had no choice. Uh, that was the only way, you know, I could get my business off the ground. I had alimony to pay, and if I didn't like, if I didn't succeed, I was going to jail. So I had like a great sales <laughs> incentive. Good, because that's not a lot of beer in that's jail. Good motivation. <laughs> that's a very good motivation. It was a market for you, right? Oh, the God. jail market. 
market. Yeah. So, I, and I had no idea what it was like to sell. Harvard doesn't teach you to no, sell. No. They think that's like somehow, you know, sketchy. Uh, so I, what, and you know, when, if you're an overeducated person, what do you do when you need to learn something new? You go buy a book on it. So I went to uh, all the bookstores in Harvard Square. I could find one book on selling. Uh, it was uh, Tom Hopkins' Mastering the Art of Selling. Really? And yeah, I kind of had this, I mean, 1980s picture. The suit might have been polyester, I don't know. But that was the only book I could find. And I learned, I read it, you know, and I learned how to sell. Uh, and I actually learned that selling is a very noble activity because the essence of selling is figuring out how the product that you have to offer will help the customer accomplish their objectives. And if you're doing that, you are, that is a very noble thing. You are helping them. And all this manipulative stuff that you see in, you know, portrait of a salesman or, you know, Tin Man or Glen Gary, Glen Ross, all the salespeople portrayals in our culture, that doesn't work. It doesn't build long-term relationships. This gentleman I'm sitting next to first bought my beer 33 years ago, and today he's still one of my biggest customers. That's how you build a business. So when you talk about selling, then it's not coincidental. I know about 10 years ago you started Brewing the American Dream, which is a program to advise young entrepreneurs on how to sell, how to get funding, the nuts and bolts of how to build a business. What inspired you to create this program which embraces an amazing social action, the mission of giving back. And what's the most common advice you give these entrepreneurs? Okay, so there's three questions there. Um, the inspiration came, uh, and this sounds a little bizarre, but um, 40 years ago in 1978, I wrote an article, which you can still find on the internet, um, when I was in law school for the uh, Harvard Environmental Law Review, and uh, uh, the thesis of the article, uh, which I, I think I had enough proof to demonstrate, is that businesses that recognize that they have a social mission do better financially. Mm. So there is not a trade-off between doing good things and doing well by your shareholders. So I wrote that 40 years ago, and I believe it today. The actual inspiration for Brewing the American Dream program was uh, like 12 years ago, we were doing our typical corporate community support, social responsibility thing. I took my management team. We painted a community center um, in South Boston. And you know everybody felt really good uh, as we left. And I felt crummy. And I couldn't figure out, why do I not feel good about this? And then I realized why I didn't feel good about it. I realized I'd taken probably $20,000 worth of management time uh, and produced like $5,000 worth of bad painting. And that didn't feel good because as a business, what I'm supposed to do is create value, to take something worth $2 and make it worth $5. That's what, and I had taken something worth twenty thousand dollars and made it worth five thousand, and I didn't feel good about it. So I then went back and rethought this whole, you know, how do I use the special skills that I have to create value for the the communities that I serve? And we actually spent over a year trying to, you know, everything we do is innovative. I said, well, let's innovate in here. Let's do something. I don't want to write checks. That's just taking money from one pocket and putting it in another. Let's add value. And we realized we have special expertise in starting and growing a business, particularly in food, beverage, and hospitality. So out of that came the Bring the American Dream program, which uh, has two components. Um, one of them is this technique that we invented called speed coaching where, because uh, when I started Sam Adams, I, you know, I had all this education, but I didn't know anything about the nuts and bolts of a doing business. I didn't know how do you set up a payroll? How do you make a sales call? How do you design a label? How do you do your accounting? How do you get 
PR for your company? How do you call on Whole Foods? Blah, blah, blah. I didn't know any of those, and I learned them by trial and error, and I realized there's a lot of these startup businesses, and we're talking very small, like two people, three people, five people, that have a great product and have a lot of passion, but they're doing all the nuts and bolts by trial and error. So they come in for speed coaching. They'll get six different coaches uh, during a two-hour period. They'll sign up for ones with expertise in the specific areas that they need help. And then that's coupled with a microfinance program where we make loans uh, to those businesses so that they can actually take the loan, grow their business, create economic development in their community, and and hopefully pay it back because this is not charity. Uh, we don't. There's no benefit if they get a loan and they go broke. Right. We want them to pay it back. We recycle it. We want them to create jobs and economic development. And how many people so far have gone through the program? Oh, we've had, I think, 8,000 businesses really? go through the coaching and counseling, and we've made... I think it's like 1,600 loans um, to small business. Cool. And the repayment rate is 98%. Wow. That's, out, that, that's yeah, outstanding. Because they've got great products and really? they're passionate. Kudos to you. That's, that's phenomenal. Well, and the, the hmm. part that is very surprising to people is we've made loans to about 50 breweries uh, to help really? them grow. Uh, uh, help them grow, huh? Yeah. Because this is a community right. of craft you brewers. Want to, you want to grow you, the industry, you, right. Yeah, right. that's right. You, you have a, a, a great story um, that, you know, sort of an experience that happened to you early on in, in your business where you reached a crossroads and you had to make a decision in terms of do you put more money into it? Do you pull the plug on something? Take us through where oh. you were at that point, because I think it's a great lesson for people to hear and understand, because oftentimes they get paralyzed when faced with that scenario. Oh, okay. I think you're talking about our decision to renovate the brewery here mm -hmm. in Boston. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I started um, in what was then an abandoned brewery uh, in a sort of sketchy neighborhood of Boston, and you know, we started to get some traction. We started to get some recognition. We got picked as the best beer in America uh, for several years in, in a row, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to expand it. Um, and brewers, you know, we have this edifice complex. You know, we like buildings full of stainless steel. It's like an aphrodisiac for us to see all that plumbing. So I had to say, you know, I was going to renovate this brewery um, in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood of Boston. And I spent it like a year and a half on it. We bought some equipment. We were ready to go. Um, and I was expecting it would cost Eight million dollars, and I raised enough money to go to eleven. What, what the, year was this in the stage? Nineteen eighty-eight. Okay, maybe four okay. years. Four in. years. Okay. Um, and the bids came in not at eight, not even at eleven, but at fifteen. And I had to like take a deep breath and go, "Do I really throw the dice and hope I can pay for this? And if I'm wrong, I'm going to go broke." And I decided not to. Uh, I wrote off $2 million that we'd put into it. I actually had advice from uh, a good friend of mine, uh, and his advice was, Jim, why risk what you have to get what you don't need? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what that, I that, had that, was that, a success that, that's 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 Think about that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't need that brewery. Yeah. So why risk what you have to get what you don't need? You know, Jim, we talked about a lot of different products, but I saw an article in Fortune, and this is really pretty cool. It's called, I don't know, Roger, have you heard of the Sam Adams high-octane beer? Every two years. Utopian the, beers. You're right on. The extreme uh, We don't beers. think of it as Every two years. Fortune says high-octane. Yeah. The brewers of Samuel Adams every two years come up with this great event, Utopias. The biennial release, which carries a price tag of $199, and 
and ABV of a whopping 20% is one of the beer world's most thank highly God. recommended not items. Thank God. Not that we, it would have been appropriate, but thank God we didn't have that today because <laughs> this, this interview would have gone down the tubes within six minutes. But, and, but, but only 13... Now, you're a trained professional. <laughs> I wasn't going to spit. You'd be all right. <laughs> but only 13,000 bottles are made, okay? And 11 states won't carry it because of the sky-high alcohol illegal, content. Sure. So share with us... How you started, why you started, yep. what's it all about? Well, it's kind of the lunatic fringe of brewing. Okay. But, uh, you know, that's part of the what makes the American craft brewing movement such a special and unique thing. It's all these people pushing envelopes. And when I started Sam Adams, it was began a lot of what craft brewing was, was bringing traditional styles of beer from Europe to the United States. You know, porters, stouts, bitters, you know, ambers, ales, etc. Well, uh, like, oh, maybe uh, six, eight years into it, I thought, well, wait a minute. Um, let's start, you know, doing unique new things. Uh, let's do things that have never been done before. And at that point, the highest alcohol beer in human history in 12,000 years of brewing was about 14, 15% alcohol. And I thought, I can, I can do better. <laughs> I can double that one, that. baby. Well, well, it took me a while. After a beer or? <laughs> well, it was just like, this is a cool thing to do. This is like the Star Trek mentality. You know, let's, uh, let's go, go where no one has gone before and see what new worlds we yeah. discover. Yeah. So we pushed the fermentation up to like 18%, 36 proof. That was called triple box. Wow. And we just kept going. So now Utopias is almost 30% alcohol, 60 proof. We are blending barrels. Some of them are over 23 years old. So we now have beer that's old enough to drink itself. And Utopias, you know, it sells for $200 a bottle. We sell every bottle we can make. And when we launched it, you know, everybody was skeptical that beer could have that kind of quality. And so we would do these blind tastings with food and wine writers. We'd give them a nice meal. And at the end of it, we would give them three liquids, A, B, and C. And we'd ask them to evaluate them, score them, pick their favorite. And the three liquids, uh, A was the only port that got a perfect 100-point rating from the Wine Spectator, a 1994 Flatgate. B was our humble beer. And C, well, it was originally Louis Trez, uh, like a $1,000 bottle of cognac. So we had arguably the best port in the world, uh, arguably the best cognac in the world against Utopias. And I think we've done that 21 times, and we've only lost once. Really? Yes. It just, it is a uh, Utopias, uh, it's in the flavor space between like a, uh, a vintage port and uh, an old sherry and a fine cognac. So, so it's fortified. No, it's not fortified. No, so I have a, I have a bo- I actually have a bottle from a long time ago. I think it was two thousand seven. Yeah, is that right? odd numbered uh, years. Yep. Okay, so so what would that be tasting like today? I never opened it. Beautiful. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Utopias. It's immortal. It's immortal. Yeah. So what? I take it by the shot or a little uh, snifter? You know. A half an ounce to an ounce. It is explosively aromatic. Just a little bit. You know, you put like five cc's on your tongue, and the flavor fills your whoa, head. Whoa, Roger, when you open whoa. it, I'm coming over. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, all right. So, but, but from, from, so, what will it taste like today? So, today it'll be good. How well will it age? So far, I mean, the oldest one is 2001, I think, and it's good. It'll pick up a little bit of more sherry-like, oxidative sherry notes. But if you haven't opened it, it's sealed <laughs> with a yeah. beer bottle cap. Right. You know, it comes right. in a, right. a porcelain copper-glazed bottle that looks like a brew kettle, but there's a bottle cap on it because it's beer. So, Jim, with the next one coming out in 2019 – and only 13,000 are produced, do people reserve their bottle in advance? 
no, to buy? we don't do that. No, we just, you know, when we make it, um, we distribute it to our wholesalers, and they put it into the kind of accounts that have customers going to pay two hundred dollars for a, you know, a great gorgeous bottle of something unique and special, and that's not, you know, that's not every convenience right, store. Right. Hmm. We're, we're going to switch to the lightning round right before we do, since you've had a couple of beers, Jim. All right, what I'm really, ready. What really pisses you off about the industry today? <laughs> and I only say this because you've yeah. had a couple of beers. No, no. <laughs> um, what pisses me off, I guess, is I'm still trying to get in the consumer's mind to realize that beer deserves all the same dignity and nobility and quality as wine. Got it. Okay. Lightning round. What beer did you drink in college? Oh, gosh. This was a long time ago. And let's see. This would have been... What did I have? Because I first came here. I had some half and refer. I had some nasty gasket. Okay. A.K.A. Okay. Narragansett. Did you have any right. bo- <laughs> but in the wine category, did you ever have that Boone's Farm? Oh, that was a headache in a bottle, yeah, Larry. Yes. All right, Jim. If you were stranded on an island and could only drink two beers for a year, what Sam Adams beer would it be, and what other beer from another brewery would you want access to? Well, it would probably be the original, Sam Adams Boston Lager. That's been, you know, to me, uh, I mean, I try lots of other beers because I'm looking at new, interesting, different but uh, when I go home, I want a reliably rewarding beer experience. And that's what Boston Lager has been for 30-some years. What is better, European hops or American hops? Depends on the beer you want to make. It's like saying European grapes or American grapes. So uh, for a classic lager, you know, a sort of pre-industrial lager that is what lager beer is, was like before it became lighter and less flavorful, you'd want Bavarian hops, you'd want noble hops, you'd want Hollertel, Middlefru, and Tetnang Tetnang. Jim, what piece of advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Drink more beer. <laughs> it's your future. Uh, you were an outward-bound instructor, okay? What was the most harrowing experience you found yourself in? Oh, gosh. I mean, I can tell you because you remember these things. Uh, Let's see. I was working with another instructor. He was senior. He made a mistake, which we were uh, – we had a – uh, nine people uh, out, out were bound uh, people in kayaks, and we were going down uh, some rapids. I think they were like class four. It was, it was scary to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And normally an what you do is, you know, you put the senior instructor at the bottom. You send them down one at a time. So when they fall out, you can get them. <laughs> you can get their paddle. You can hopefully get their boat. Um, but this guy did something stupid, and he just said, no, bring them all down. And I was, you know, at the top, and actually there was an instructor in training that came down first. He went over, and when he flipped, all the the students went over. So we had like nine or ten people in the the rapids, uh, out of their boats, uh, paddles floating down, you know, and just him and me trying to pick kids up. Uh, from these rapids and ferry them uh, to an eddy or to the bank. And uh, it was, it was, I mean, I, to be totally honest, I pissed in my wetsuit. <laughs> I was so scared. Wow. Wow. I was, but luckily we got them all. I think we only lost one paddle and one boat, but that was I the thought you were going to say only lost one kid. <laughs> no, we got everybody, but Good. it was Oof. like in the rapids trying to ferry them across. You know, that was just it was not fun. I remember how frightening that was to this day. With, with your heritage being in Boston, is there a chance we'll be seeing some special flavors tied to Boston sports teams? For example, Icy Bruin, Brady Brew, Wicked Red, are you Sam Shamrock. Are you making this up, Larry? <laughs> um, those are really dumb ideas, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, but you know, I'm thinking a, there could be something. Of Fenway, so it's yeah. not that dumb. When you mm-hmm. think about New England icons, there's... Ball, uh, there's 
the Red Sox, there's Sam Adams, there's Fenway Park, and we're able to put all of those together. You've expanded your company into teas, ciders, hard seltzers. I didn't know that Truly was yours. I actually bought some uh, not too long ago. It's very good. You have good taste. <laughs> Thank you. Most people don't realize it's part of, of Boston beer. Do you purposely do that? Well, yeah, at Boston Beer, and uh, we were talking about it earlier, there's this sort of restless dissatisfaction with the status quo and this desire to make cool new things, even if they're outside the boundaries that people have set. And to me, you know, our, well, our mission is to grow by offering the highest quality products to the U.S. beer drinker. So, for example, that was where Angry Orchard came from. Cider is a very traditional American beverage. It was the biggest alcoholic beverage in the United States uh, for most of our history. It wasn't until the Civil War that beer supplanted hard cider as the primary alcoholic beverage. So to me, you know, I want to do new cool things, many of them based on tradition, and then others completely innovative. True, true or false, you had your first beer at four years old. Well, my parents were very strict and they made me wait. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise it would have been two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't a, it wasn't in a glass, was it? <laughs> you know, I don't remember it. I think it was in a glass, but I'm not sure. Hey, Jim, Jim Cook, Sam Adams, Boston Beer, boy, uh, a uh, a real maverick in the industry. It really has changed the industry. We've had so much fun having you on today. Thank you so much. Well, I hate it's drinking alone. You guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> remember to subscribe to Brit Name Brands. Remember to subscribe to name brands on uh, Apple. Too, Pro- much, too much beer, Larry? Yeah, really. This is <laughs> the surprise one. Yes, no, this is This one I'm taking the car with me. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to subscribe to name brands on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.